Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with an assessment of the predictions and polling ahead of next Tuesday's election and speak with Alan Lickman, a political historian who teaches at American University and has studied both the American right and the presidency. His books include The Keys to the White House, A Surefire Way to Predicting the Next President. His prediction system has correctly predicted the outcomes of all U.S. presidential elections since 1984, including the 2016 election, which against all odds he predicted a Trump victory. The author of the national bestseller, The Case for Impeachment, his latest book is 13 Cracks, Repairing American Democracy After Trump, and we will discuss the possibility of a surprise from Democratic turnout upsetting the pollsters and pundits' assumptions that the Republicans will take control of the House and possibly win the Senate. Then, along with concerns that there are almost 300 election-denying Republicans running for office to take over election machinery that would enable them to rig future elections in their favour, we'll look into how changes in voting laws will make it easier to vote in some states and harder in others. Joining us is Joshua Douglas, a professor of law at the University of Kentucky College of Law, who teaches and researches election law and voting rights, civil procedure, constitutional law, and judicial decision-making. He's the author of Vote for Us, How to Take Back Our Elections and Change the Future of Voting, and we'll discuss his article at CNN, Election Deniers Aren't the Only Threats to Democracy This Year. Then finally, we'll explore the need to find a way to prevent the war in Ukraine from escalating into a confrontation between NATO and Russia, and speak with Charles Kupchin, who was Director for European Affairs on the National Security Council during the Clinton administration. He is now a Professor of International Affairs at Georgetown University School of Foreign Service and spent the last three years of the Obama administration as Special Assistant to President Obama for National Security. He's the author of How Enemies Become Friends, The Sources of Stable Peace, and his latest book is Isolationism, A History of American Efforts to Shield Itself from the World, and we will discuss his article at the New York Times, It's Time to Bring Russia and Ukraine to the Negotiating Table. And joining us now is Alan Lickman, a political historian who teaches at American University and has studied both the American right and the presidency. His books include The Keys to the White House, A Surefire Way to Predicting the Next President. His prediction system has correctly predicted the outcomes of all U.S. presidential elections since 1984, including the 2016 election when, against all odds, he predicted a Trump victory. The author of the national bestseller, The Case for Impeachment, his most recent books are Repeal the Second Amendment, The Case for a Safer America, and The Embattled Vote in America. And his latest book is 13 Cracks, Repairing American Democracy After Trump. Welcome to Background Briefing, Alan Lickman. Thank you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And I know midterm is not what you normally predict. You predict presidential elections. But I'm asking you, nevertheless, what's your sense? Because most of the polling and most of the punditry suggesting that the Republicans will pick up the House and possibly the Senate... But on the other hand, you keep hearing about record turnouts uh, in Georgia and other states. So there could be a surprise. Is that possible that the Democrats could pull off a surprise with massive turnout? Absolutely. Uh, Massive turnout is always better for Democrats 
than it is for Republicans because non-voters tend to be much more democratic. So the more you can uh, muster non-voters at the poll, typically uh, that's much better uh, for Democrats than it is for Republicans. I think it's going to be a rough go to win the House simply because of the gerrymandering. You know, the Supreme Court has said federal courts aren't going to touch gerrymandering. The states can gerrymander as egregiously as they want, like we've seen in Florida and Texas, and uh, the federal courts aren't going to touch it. And if the state courts uh, tend to be conservative, they're not going to touch it either. So at least 20 seats, maybe more, are in the Republicans' pocket simply because of political gerrymandering. So the House is going to be a tough go. Uh, But I think the Democrats could surprise and uh, hold on to the Senate. There are six or seven key races in places like Nevada and Arizona, Pennsylvania, Georgia, that are just too close to call. And it will, in the end, be uh, tilted by turnout. And let me say the Senate is much more important than the House, even though there's been so much focus on the House, for the simple reason that the Senate approves appointments, including lifetime judges. And uh, Trump appointed, oh, close to 250 judges, uh, a near record for a one-term president. And uh, if Mitch McConnell becomes majority leader, you can bet that Biden's appointments in terms of their contribution will slow to a trickle at best. And that will, of course, slow down the rebalancing that's underway. Although, as you point out, Trump did appoint an awful lot of judges, a record amount for a one-term president. And a lot of them, if not all of them, were Federalist Society conservatives. We've seen some of the rulings coming down from them, particularly the Florida ruling, which was almost entirely a political ruling as opposed to a judicial outcome. And as I said, they, they are young. They're going to be in the bench for a long time. You know, John Adams served four years for the dying Federalist Party as president, but he put in John Marshall as chief justice, who served over 30 years and put the imprints of Adams' Federalist policies all over the Constitution, long after the Federalists were anything of a force in American politics. So how are the Republicans doing well, if indeed that is the case, they certainly seem to be making a comeback because they've the numbers for the particularly the Democrats in the Senate who were way ahead are slowly going down. Now, I understand there's massive amounts of money being spent, and I don't know how much of that is coming from Leonard Leo, who got the one point six billion from one donor alone, and he's the guy that's really shaped the judiciary with all of these far-right judges, uh, which he chose personally and promoted. He's got six of them on the Supreme Court. So what's the explanation for why some of the Democrats have lost their lead, some of the important ones, too, in these swing states? Absolutely. Uh, There are a number of reasons. Uh, You have mentioned the money. The continued high inflation is probably the single most important reason, you know, there hasn't been much improvement on the inflation front. And the problem with inflation is it affects everyone. Unemployment doesn't, but inflation affects every American and every American family. 
another point, uh, while Biden's approval has ticked up a bit, it's still in, in, in the low to mid 40s, which is typically indicative of a bad midterm for the party holding the White House. Uh, next, Democratic messaging has been abysmal. I don't understand, you know, why the Democrats now for, 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 you know, a very long time, at least since 2008, have not been able to get out a clear and compelling message or counter the torrent of lies that uh, the Republicans have put out in this and uh, other elections. You know, a lot of smart people in the Democratic Party, I don't get it why Democratic messaging has been so abysmal. People don't even know about the extraordinary accomplishments of the Biden administration, probably the greatest slew of domestic accomplishments since uh, the 1960s, and it's unknown. And the slogan is build back better. What does that mean? That moves nobody. So, you know, if the Democrats have a disappointing midterm, it's part, partly, but not entirely their own fault. And look, I put a lot of blame on the voters. How in the world, no matter how you're saddled with inflation, do you think electing a Republican Congress is going to help with inflation? First of all, you can't legislate from Congress. And secondly, they have no answers to inflation. Their main policy is big tax cuts for the wealthy, which is just going to make inflation worse. And uh, they pose a grave danger to our democracy. Look, it's real simple. You can vote Republican and you'll have inflation and no democracy, or you can vote, vote Democratic and you'll have inflation, but you'll keep the democracy. Inflation comes and goes. Once you lose your democracy, you're not going to get it back. So, Alan Lickman, are you suggesting that that should have been the centerpiece of the Democrats' arguments? That, that, Absolutely. That, that and, democracy you know. is on the ballot. And frankly, you know, I talk to a lot of people who many of whom bring up the analogies with Germany in the 1930s, that fascism is just around the corner here in America, you know, and that the Republicans are trying to capture the electoral machinery so that they can create a one-party state and break back Donald Trump, one of the most disgraceful and failed presidents in, in American history, if not the most disgraceful and failed president in American history. So why is it that a party that doesn't stand for anything, and as you point out, they don't have any plans for any or even a platform, let alone know how to deal with inflation or have any ideas about it, but what they seem to do is troll and fight yes. culture wars. So why is that fear. working? Why is that working? Fear works. You know, I go back to Robert Frost's great poem, uh, Fire and Ice. And he says, if I had to choose, I think the world will end in fire. In other words, it's fire that is most destructive. And of course, the fire that uh, the Republicans are stoking is fear. You know, fear that the America as we once knew it, of course, a totally mythical America, you know, the, the America of the white uh, Protestant pioneers is being threatened by a host of usurpers and, of course, the white pioneer male-controlled <laughs> America is being threatened by a host of usurpers, uh, the Jews, the Latin Americans, uh, the feminists. And uh, we have to rise up and 
combat uh, this threat to this mythical ideal. And that's what Make America Great is all about. It's appealing to this false myth of a patriarchal, wonderful, white Christian society. Well, it's amazing, though, that in the state of Florida, there are 5.3 million registered Republicans and less than 5 million registered Democrats, and the Democrats' registration has gone down, whereas the Republicans have gone up, and it's largely to, due to the Hispanic vote. The Hisp- yes. Uh, Hispanics this is a, this are is, embracing yes. Trumpism. And this is a man who insults them from day one. The first thing he said when he was announced he's running was that basically to insult Latinos. So what explains that? Yeah, this is, a, you know, a, an important side matter, you know, aside from the fundamental appeal of Republicans. And it's, you know, I think Florida is the only place where Republicans are competitive with the Latino vote, because there's a long tradition of deep conservatism among uh, Cuban Americans, many of whom have their roots in uh, anti-Castro and fled Castro. Plus, I think there is a certain degree of appeal to the religiosity of uh, the Hispanic community. I think uh, some of the right-wing religious appeal, including anti-abortion, has some resonance among elements of the Latino community. And finally, I don't think the Latino community that's established in America is all that keen on an influx of uh, migrants from Venezuela or Nicaragua or places like that. And finally, I always come back to this, the absolute failure of an effective democratic messaging. Well, it's pretty late now. It's less than a week before the election. So President Biden is speaking tonight just after we go to air or just when we go to air. What do you expect him to say? He's going to talk about the threat to American democracy, apparently. He's going to talk about American democracy. And I hope he talks about his accomplishments and how the Republicans have voted against all of them. You know, there isn't a single positive thing to come out of the Republicans in Congress during the Biden administration and all the good things that have come out of the administration. And he surprised me, frankly, at you know how effective he's been in getting legislation. All of it has been opposed by the Republicans with no alternatives uh, being presented. But the truth is, you know, in midterm elections, it is fire that tends to rule the people who want to register a protest against the existing administration are the ones typically most motivated to come out. And those who are satisfied are less motivated. That's the story of midterms and why, with only three exceptions throughout our history, the party holding the White House has lost ground in the Congress and midterm elections. Well, it is extraordinary to see this uh, Fox News TV host in Arizona running for governor who's an election denier and will not state whether or not she'd accept the results of the election if she were to lose. I mean... Oh, she won't. She's she's made that clear. 
and yeah. she's now campaigning against Obamacare. She wants to repeal Obamacare. I just don't know how that could possibly be popular. I don't know I, how I, I Ron Johnson it. can get any votes. And same with uh, Scott in Florida wanting to end Social Security and uh, Medicare. So this is where it's bizarre. Uh, it's is... really bizarre. And uh, one thing that I found totally strange in some of the polls, including the Pew poll, I think, that just came out, uh, with all the horrific revelations about Donald Trump that have come out in the last couple of months, including how he has severely undermined America's national security. I don't care what he's done with those top secret documents. The very fact that he's kept them in a non-secure stolen documents, don't belong to him, in a non-secure facility means that all our intelligence agencies, every single one of them, has to assume they've been compromised. And that means American intelligence all around the world has been compromised and our national security has taken a, a huge hit. And never mind all the revelations that have come out about his role in January 6th and setting up fake electors, uh, multiple, multiple lawsuits, yet his approval rating has ticked up. I, I don't get it. I, I have to say I'm... I'm baffled. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is post-truth America, and well, alternative facts seem to be winning. I mean, if the only explanation I can give you, Alan, is that I think you can hold Zuckerberg and Elon Musk and Peter Thiel and company liable for spreading this fake news and alternative facts and allowing the lies to metastasize. They're the conduit. And if you got rid of Section 230 of the Communication Acts that exempts these people from any responsibility as publishers, then I think it would change if they had the same discipline as the New York Times and the Washington Post, having to print what's actually true and sourced and verified and fact-checked, then we'd be in a different environment. Gosh, you know, I, I wrote about this in my latest book, was published last year, 13 Cracks, uh, repairing American democracy after Trump. I talked about the social media, how it creates a new kind of community. You know, it used to be communities are defined uh, geographically or maybe genetically or maybe even religiously or racially to an extent. But now you have communities defined by their beliefs. They can, you know, be anywhere of any race, any religion, any gender. And the algorithms of the social media target only information or alternative facts often that reinforce their beliefs and make them impervious to any debunking. This is what makes it so dangerous. 66% of Republicans still think that the election was stolen, despite mountains of information. This is what is so scary, is that these folks are not movable. Facts, analysis, information don't matter. They discount it all. You know, it's the Alex Jones effect. Oh, it's all fake. It's all staged. It's all from the deep state. It's all fake news. And so no matter what facts are presented, they get dismissed. You know, if Sandy Hook could be a fake, then anything is a fake. Anything 
and you can sure. dismiss any information. Well, just in closing, though, we've been talking a bit about Florida, Alan, and on Sunday, Trump is holding a rally down in Florida to which the governor, Ron DeSantis, is not invited. Trump apparently is really peeved, <laughs> and, and that's going to get interesting the more that those two start to clash. But my understanding is that the Department of Justice is going to indict him over what you were talking about earlier, the theft of government property involving some of the nation's top secrets, which God knows what happened to them or whether he sold them to the Chinese or the Russians or, or whatever. Saudis. <laughs> Saudis in particular, yeah. Well, yeah. obviously that's a likely thing. So this is the situation we're in. And my understanding is that Trump is going to announce on Sunday that he's running for president to be in a situation when once the DOJ does indict him, he'll be able to then turn around and say, I, I'm a, running for president and therefore I'm protected. But he's uh, not, of course. No, Anyone but that... could say I'm running for president, you know, and that doesn't immunize you from committing crimes if you are the president. And of course, he thinks he still is the president. And unfortunately, tens of millions of people have that same mass psychosis. But uh, he's not the president. He can say all he wants about running and that has no legal standing whatsoever. Of course, you know, he's going to use it to fundraise like crazy, you know, claiming he needs all this money for his defense. And he's not going to spend any of it on his defense. He's going to pocket it or use it for his presidential campaign. And he'll claim, you know, he's being persecuted politically. You know, it's witch hunt 5002 <laughs> against Trump. But legally, it has no standing. Well, we'll wait and see. I mean, obviously it's speculation, but that's the rumors that I'm hearing. So I thank you for joining us, uh, Alan Lickman. I really appreciate it. Great fun as always, Ian. Take care. You too. And again, I've been speaking with Alan Lickman, a political historian who teaches at American University and has studied both the American right and the presidency. His books include The Keys to the White House, A Surefire Way to Predicting the Next President. His prediction system has correctly predicted the outcomes of all U.S. presidential elections since 1984, including the 2016 election when, against all odds, he predicted a Trump victory. The author of the national bestseller, The Case for Impeachment, his most recent books are Repeal the Second Amendment, The Case for a Safer America, and The Embattled Vote in America. And his latest book is 13 Cracks, Repairing American Democracy After Trump. We're going to take a brief station break back looking into how changes in election laws will make it easier to vote in some states and harder in others.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, Joshua Douglas, who's a professor of law at the University of Kentucky's College of Law, who teaches and researches election law and voting rights, civil procedure, constitutional law, and judicial decision-making. He's the author of Vote for Us, How to Take Back Our Elections and Change the Future of Voting, and he has an article at CNN, Election Deniers Aren't the Only Threats to Democracy This Year. Welcome to Background Briefing, Josh Douglas. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, Josh. And obviously, there are real concerns that we've got almost 300 uh, Republican election deniers running uh, for office, many of them in key Secretary of State and other offices overseeing voting. Uh, There's a concern that they could capture the electoral machinery in the country, and particularly in some of key swing states. And basically, uh, in future elections, starting in 2024, uh, they can decide who wins and possibly make Democratic votes meaningless. So that's a concern, obviously. But you're adding another concern, but there's good news and bad news, right? There are some states that are making it easier to vote and other states that are making it harder to vote. So let's start with the states that are making it easier to vote. Sure. So you're right that I think there's a concern here about um, about certainly election deniers winning office uh, to secretary of state or other offices that oversee elections. Um, but, you know, I always like to point out the good news in voting rights because there is good news out there on things that some states are doing. Um, and this continues a trend from previous years. This is not a new thing for 2022, but it's a, it's a continued uh, aspect. So you have a state like Michigan that's going to vote on a proposal to expand early voting, um, to make absentee balloting easier, uh, and requiring the state to provide uh, prepaid stamps to return your ballot, um, making sure there's sufficient number of drop boxes And this uh, proposition is important because it would enshrine these rights in the state constitution, uh, making it such that the legislature in Michigan couldn't undo these. Um, And I think that's really important given that we've seen a lot of legislatures attacking the right to vote. Um, You've got Nevada voting on ranked choice voting um, uh, to follow Maine and Alaska that have used that system. Um, And you've got a bunch of localities voting to expand access to the ballot or make it easier uh, for voters to express their preferences. Well, in the recent election in Alaska, ranked choice voting did allow another candidate other than Sarah Palin to win. But a lot of the Republicans were quite upset about it, and Senator Tom Cotton basically said that this is ranked choice is a, is a form of Democratic vote rigging. So yeah, I mean, this is this is a real problem that we have with a segment of the Republican Party that any time they lose, it must be because the system is rigged against them somehow. I mean, everyone knew the the rules of the game going into the Alaska uh, election. Um, ranked choice voting gives voters more preferences. They can say, like, this candidate first and another candidate second. Uh, and the system takes those preferences into account. So I just don't, under- I don't understand this notion that there's some sort of rigging going on when we know the rules ahead of time, and then we object after the fact because we lost. You know, you lost because you lost, not because the system is rigged against you. So the ranked choice voting on the ballot in Nevada 
obviously won't affect this election, which is apparently going to be very close, particularly for in the Senate race. But if it passes, it will obviously be in play in 2024. Is there any polling on where it is? Uh, I have not seen uh, polls about the likelihood of passing, although I think it has pretty good prospects. Um, the system would create a, a top five primary where you would vote uh, among all candidates uh, and then the top five would move on to the general election and use ranked choice voting to select the winner. Um, I, I haven't seen any polling specifically on, on his chances uh, you know, the, in a week, um, but I suspect uh, given some of the other things that Nevada has passed that it has a good shot. For example, a couple years ago, Nevada voters uh, enacted a state constitutional amendment for a voters' bill of rights. Uh, a lot of rights that were already in state statutes, but now they made them constitutional. So uh, it seems to me that the Nevada Nevada electorate is, you know, some, seems to be interested in new and innovative ways uh, to to help the voting process. And uh, so I won't be surprised if if this proposition ends up winning. So the country seems to be split then between people who want to make voting easy and those who want to make voting harder. And why is it that we're the only modern democracy that has so many impediments to voting? Well, that's a complicated question. Um, I think there's a lot of things that go into it, one of which is that we have an extremely decentralized election process. You know, we don't really have one election day. We have 51 election days uh, with the 50 states in D.C., uh, and then not to mention the territories. Um, but actually, we have more like 8,000 election days that all happen simultaneously with each county running the, local, you know, the elections for their, their local um, voters. Um, and so you know, that leads to lots of different ways that people can do things, um, and that election officials can run things. You know, some might say this is good because it lets you try out uh, new systems, you know, ranked choice voting started at the local level first before expanding to statewide, and now we're looking at the third state to potentially adopt it. Um, but it also can lead to uh, you know pretty bad voting um, suppression tactics in places. And so, you know, what we need is a, is a balance here. We need robust federal law that applies nationwide uh, that sets a baseline for making voting easier, while still allowing localities some measure of autonomy to try out uh, innovative systems at the local level. So, Josh, then why can't we just simply make voting day, which is on a Tuesday, it's in the Constitution, you can't change that, or at least it's difficult to do that. Why not make it a holiday? Well, it's not in the Constitution. It's a, a statute. Um, and, you know, some places do have additional voting days, like election days, like uh, Louisiana uh, has a system where if no candidate receives a majority, they move to a runoff. This year is happening in December. Um, you know, I'm not sure that election day is a national holiday is the right answer, because there's a lot of negative consequences to that, uh, unintended consequences. Um, you know, schools will, will uh, daycares will close, and so parents will have to scramble to find uh, child care. Um, many employers will close, and so hourly workers will be out a day of work. So 
So I actually don't think Election Day is a national holiday. It's this great idea that, uh, that a lot of people have been promoting to, to make it easier to vote. I'm not sure it's actually going to improve turnout. I think it just might help the people who are going to vote anyways. Instead, I think we need to focus on various reforms that some states are, are using, including uh, expansion of early voting, uh, making it easier to vote by mail, um, taking away registration hurdles. You know, Some states say you have to register uh, up to four weeks ahead of election day, uh, or you can't vote, and there's no need for a, a four-week waiting period um, so, you know, I think there's a lot of measures that are proven to work uh, to improve turnout. Election Day is a national holiday. You know, I just worry about some of those unintended consequences uh, where it's not going to provide the benefits that I think a lot of people think it might. So just in closing then, uh, Josh, what are the states that are making it harder to vote? Well, you've got states, you know, that have ballot measures right now um, to uh, impose stricter photo ID requirements. Arizona and Nebraska uh, are in that bucket. Um, you've got state constitutional amendments on the ballot in Ohio and Louisiana to uh, forbid non-citizens from voting, which is, you know, there's not an issue in those states, but uh, some localities in other states, California, Maryland, uh, do allow non-citizens to vote in local and school board elections. Um, and then there's all these, you know, places, uh, Texas, Arizona, uh, you know, uh, Alabama, these places that already make it hard to vote. And so they're going to, you know, voters are still going to face those same kinds of hurdles uh, this election cycle. Well, Joshua Douglas, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Joshua Douglas, who's a professor of law at the University of Kentucky College of Law, who teaches and researches election law and voting rights, civil procedure, constitutional law, and judicial decision-making. He's the author of Vote for Us, How to Take Back Our Elections and Change the Future of Voting, and he has an article at CNN, Election Deniers Aren't the Only Threats to Democracy This Year. We're going to take a brief station break and back exploring the need to find a way to prevent the war in Ukraine from escalating into a confrontation between NATO and Russia. You don't need to change the futures with us. You don't need to change. Oh, give us your Destiny, we will not hide when the sun comes up. It will be on your side. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Charles Kupchin, who was Director of European Affairs on the National Security Council during the Clinton administration. He's now a Professor of International Affairs at Georgetown University School of Foreign Service, and he spent the last three years of the Obama administration as Special Assistant to President Obama for national security. 
He's the author of The End of the American Era, U.S. Foreign Policy and the Geopolitics of the 21st Century, Power in Transition, The Peaceful Change of International Order, and How Enemies Become Friends, The Sources of Stable Peace. And his latest book is Isolationism, A History of American Efforts to Shield Itself from the World. And he has an article of the New York Times, It's Time to Bring Russia and Ukraine to the Negotiating Table. Welcome to Background Briefing, Charles Kupchin. Good to be back with you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Charles. And there's some skepticism as to whether or not there is a realistic prospect of peace talks between Russia and Ukraine, given that Putin himself just recently in his discussion, the Valde Discussion Club, just went on and on about this tortured view of history he has, that Ukraine's not even a real country. So how how deeply embedded is that thought process in Putin's mind, and how much of an obstacle is it? Well, I, I think that Putin's delusions about Ukraine are mounting. When he launched the war back in February, he was really focused on, on Ukraine, saying, as you said, that Ukraine doesn't deserve to exist as an independent state. It's really part of Russia. And I think he believed that Ukrainians would delight at the prospect of being pulled back into the Russian fold, and he couldn't have been more distant from the truth. And then more recently, as Russia has been losing ground in eastern Ukraine, Putin has upped the ante, and he says, this is not just a war about Ukraine, this is a war about the future of Russia. This is existential. This is a war with Western elites. And so he's clearly doubling down. Uh, He's doing it in part because he has to rally a domestic populace that isn't very happy about the war. He's facing pushback of a sort that he's never gotten before. And I would also say that in Ukraine, they're doubling down. Uh, They're actually making significant progress on the battlefield They're angry and getting angrier by the day as their cities get pummeled. So they're not really in in talking mode either, uh, which is why I think if there is going to be any diplomatic effort, and I have to say I'm I'm skeptical that there will be right now, it's got to come from the outside. It's got to come from the United States and, and NATO allies. Do Ukraine have at least some incentive go from fighting to talking? Yes. And that's because this is a war that has no winners for now. Everybody's losing. The Russians have really suffered a very serious setback. The Ukrainians are continuing to suffer loss of life, destruction, energy shortages. So there is a reason to believe that, uh, yeah, let's give diplomacy a try. But I wouldn't hold my breath that it will happen, or if it happened, that it would necessarily work. But can you make an argument, though, that the worst thing that could happen is for Putin to win this war? Because, I mean, this goes against the very foundation of the uh, of the United Nations after World War II. You can't have countries just grabbing their neighboring countries uh, willy-nilly. I mean, it's an invitation for China to take Taiwan, isn't it? Well, I would uh, I would agree with that, and I don't think that Russia holds any real prospect of winning. 
Right. They tried to topple the Zelensky government. They failed. They then declared the annexation of four regions of Ukraine. They don't even control those regions and they're losing more and more ground. So they've already suffered a strategic defeat. I think on some level, the international system has been strengthened by the fact that this effort to subjugate Ukraine hasn't worked. In an ideal world, I would say let's continue fighting until Russia has been fully expelled from Ukrainian land and Ukraine enjoys full territorial sovereignty. Uh, The reason that I don't think we should push hard for that outcome is number one, the risks of escalation. Putin may be ready to use a nuclear weapon before complete and utter defeat. Do we really want to see this war escalate to World War III? And then the other is the blowback effects war globally. You know, we're looking at very serious food shortages, very serious spiking of energy and food prices around the world. And also here at home in the United States, in the UK, in Germany, in Italy, in France. You know, we're still, in my mind, Ian, living through a perilous political moment in which our democratic systems could consolidate and do well in the near future or in which we could see backsliding. And I do think we need to keep a watchful eye on how inflation is continuing to erode our political center and potentially lead to outcomes here and in the United uh, and in Europe that play to to the advantage of the illiberal populists. Well, in terms of using a nuclear weapon, I mean, one of the paradoxes of this war is that it's turned nuclear deterrence on its head. You know, the idea that we had mutually assured destruction throughout the Cold War and the argument that nuclear weapons kept the peace, that's been turned on its head because Putin is using the threat of nuclear war as a shield behind which he's conducting a conventional war. So I don't know how we get out of that conundrum, except most people seem to believe that he won't go there. But you're arguing that that the more this drags on and the more he's defeated and humiliated, the more likely something irrational is about to happen. Towards the end of World War II, Hitler did not use chemical or biological weapons. So is that the sort of thin reed that we are resting our hopes on? Well, you know, I would agree with you that we cannot afford to allow nuclear blackmail and nuclear bluffing to intimidate us. And I'm I'm a strong supporter of continued assistance to Ukraine. I think the Biden administration has done a very good job of organizing a broad coalition that has really enabled Ukraine to to outperform all expectations. And it's it's uplifting and it's inspiring. The the question is, is what's at stake in this conflict? Is the possible reclamation of Donbass and Crimea to Ukraine, is that so important that we should run the risk of nuclear 
escalation, that we should run the risk of this turning into World War III. And that, that is a question that I think we have to ask. Uh, and it's because of the, the possible escalation to World War III. It's because of the spillover effects of the war globally that I think we, ought, that we at least have a fulsome conversation about how far this war should go and whether we can find a diplomatic pathway to shut it down. We're not really having this conversation here in Washington. I don't know what it's like out there on the West Coast, but here, you know, everybody is still lining up firmly behind Ukraine and talking about a possible peace settlement or a territorial settlement is a little bit outside the bounds of, uh, of normal debate. But for me, it's a debate that really does need to happen. Well, Charles, one thing that's happening out here on the West Coast is we're just learning that the California economy is now the fourth largest in the world, and it's surpassing Germany's. And, of course, Germany's economy is suffering because of uh, the war in Ukraine, and it's likely to suffer even greater reduction in uh, the uh, the winter. But just in terms of trying to balance this thing out, is it more important to let Putin off the hook than it is to hope that this situation will backfire on him and somehow he'll be removed back home. I don't necessarily see that happening because the Siloviki are getting more power and Prigozhin is getting more influence over the war. And I know last time we talked, you said you're in touch with a bunch of high-ranking officials in Russia that you worked with on the National Security Council and they're on the kind of liberal side. But I'm not sure that there's too many of them left. I mean, this war has caused a massive brain drain. They've lost about a million of their best and brightest, the young men and mathematicians, IT specialists. So my impression is that what's happening inside of Russia is that it's getting more turning back the clock, more Stalinist, more influenced by the nationalists. What's your take on that? I mean, I... I I would love to see a new democratic liberal regime take power in Russia. It would be good for Russia. It would be good for the world. Do I think that we're nearing that outcome? No. Is it conceivable that Putin won't survive this war and that his state apparatus will will turn against him or there will be a grassroots uprising. Yes, it's conceivable, but we certainly can't count on it. And my take is quite similar to yours, Ian, and that is right now we are seeing harder line voices strengthen their hold. We don't see any signs that Putin's apparatus is peeling away from him the security services, the intelligence services, the ministries, the bureaucracy, they're sticking with Putin. And until you see signs that the state is peeling away, I think you have to assume that Putin is going gonna, is gonna to ride this out and be in power for, for quite some time. Uh, and that's why I think a strategy that depends upon regime change the narrative that you see out there that we need to vanquish Russia. We need 
to defeat Russia so that this never happens again, that would be great. But it's not something that we can count on. And it does, it does risk an escalation of this conflict into a war between NATO and Russia. Uh, and I'm all for a very robust, significant effort to help Ukraine defend itself, but I'm not for World War III. Well, on balance then, it seems as if trying to find a way towards a diplomatic solution is the only path. And that would mean, of course, Putin says that he's fighting America and NATO is not fighting Ukraine. He won't speak with Zelensky. Zelensky won't speak with him. We would have to lean on Zelensky pretty heavily. And if he made any kind of huge concessions, I think his own countrymen would remove him. Isn't that a problem? Yes. I mean, I do think we need to to walk a fine line here in the sense that our support for Ukraine should continue and it should be strong. I do, however, think that we should get more involved in managing the war, the war's conduct, the operational planning, and we should leverage with Ukraine and with Russia to at least open the door to a diplomatic settlement. Would it be hard for Zelensky? You bet. Uh, Ukrainians are getting angrier and more defiant by the day. I think Putin thinks he can bomb them into submission. The opposite is happening. They're hopping mad. Uh, and so, yeah, uh, Zelensky has the country behind him in saying we will recover every inch of our territory. But again, that's a gamble that may be too risky. It may be that it is, uh, you know, the better half of prudence to say, well, let's keep pushing. Let's help the Ukrainians get as far as they can. But let's try to find a diplomatic end game because going all the way and completely defeating Russia raises the risk of escalation too high. Well, ironically, as far as I can tell, Charles, that the possibility of defeating Russia has probably more to do with the corruption in Russia, and particularly in the military, than it may have to do with the prowess and the bravery um, of the Ukrainians and the extent to which NATO and Western weapons are helping them. I mean, some analysts are suggesting that the Russian army could actually collapse. They're pouring these, 41,000 of these young recruits who were barely trained, and maybe they got a week or two of training, throwing them into the fight. You got Prigozhin and Herdirov, the, the Chechen warlord, and they're nationalist backers who were dominating uh, Russian media, basically openly at warfare with the Russian military itself. So there's massive splits within on the mercenary wing of the military. And apparently they're, on the mercenary wing, they're throwing in these, um, they're emptying the gulags and all these prisoners, many of whom have AIDS and hepatitis on the front line. And the Russian military doctors don't want to treat them for obvious reasons. So Putin basically offers gangster government, and it's a mafia state, and he's the godfather the, of the godfathers. 
is there any chance that that whole edifice could collapse? Well, you're you're correct to talk about the chaotic conditions of, of Russian forces in the eastern Ukraine. From what we gather, it's it's chaotic. They're underfed, underclothed, underarmed, uh, and in many cases, you know, putting their arms down and and running away. Uh, do I expect the Russian military to collapse? No, I don't. Uh, do I expect the Russians to mount a very significant offense and take back land that they've lost? No. I think the most likely scenario is what we would call a new frozen conflict, uh, especially as we head into winter, more mud, more difficult conditions for fighting. You see the situation quiet down a bit, uh, but the fighting continues sporadically, no major movement in the, in the front. Shifting the focus to Russia proper and to, and to Moscow, yeah, I think you put your finger on it, and it's the vulnerability of the regime, but it's also its strength, right? This is uh, a government that is effectively a kleptocracy. The people around Putin are sticking with Putin because they benefit from being in the system. They benefit economically. Their privilege depends upon this system's surviving. And I think one of the reasons that they continue to stick with Putin is because he is buttering their bread. Uh, and until we start to see people say, you know what, I'm willing to give up being in this patronage system because I think he's taking Russia down a rabbit hole. Until you see people really start to do that, I think the regime has staying power. Well, unfortunately, the people who see that and know that, we don't know from polling exactly how pervasive it is in the country, but in a curious way, it just seems that Russia's politics are a little bit like ours, where you have a conservative block in the countryside and arguably in Russia's red states that along with the evangelical wing pushed by the Orthodox Church, a bit like, you know, the way that they stick with Trump here. And, and on the other hand, the more progressive side of Russia, largely in the urban blue states, if you will, they're all fleeing the country, at least a lot of them are. So that's the problem, isn't it, that we may just have to accept that Putin's going to be around. Maybe the system will collapse. I mean, I've always been troubled by the phenomenon that we've never had in geopolitics before, the combination of national security and organized crime, nuclear weapons and the mafia. And I don't know how we get out of that, except you make a deal with the godfather. Well, you know, you you put your finger on it that the that the people who who could potentially bring the system down because they're no longer willing to tolerate it are leaving, right? They're now in Turkey, they're in London, they're in other European ports of call, and in some ways that's what Putin wants because it removes them from the system and potential domestic opposition effectively goes into to exile. 
Uh, and this is this is not new. This has been happening for a long time. It's one of the reasons that any oligarch who is willing to stand up to Putin doesn't live in Russia anymore because he would he would crack down on them. He'd be uh, dead. <laughs> yeah. Uh, or he'd just lose all of his assets because the, the state wouldn't throw him in jail for something and take his his money away. Uh, so it is a it is a system that is that is deeply flawed, but but demonstrates a considerable amount of staying power. And, you know, you you were sort of drawing some comparisons to the United States. I I found it very interesting that the other day in one of his speeches, he was attempting to appeal to those sections of the American and European electorates that are on the more conservative right-wing populist end of the spectrum. Uh, because I think, you know, a part of his game here is to buy time. It's to get us past the midterms. And I think everything uh, points in the direction of the Republicans taking back the House next week. Some of those Republicans, a good number of them, may well be America first Republicans. We already have the minority leader, Kevin McCarthy, saying, hey, guess what, folks? If we take back the House, no blank check for Ukraine. So I think part of, of Russia's strategy here is to wait us out and assume that we may be able to, that he may be able to get cracks in the wall here in the West. And, you know, we it is something we need to worry about, right? A uh, a government in Italy has just taken office populated by pro-Russian voices with roots in Italy's neo-fascist movement. You mentioned Germany a few minutes ago, uh, Ian. You know, we're looking at major German industries unable to pay their energy bills, unable to run their production lines. Uh, these are conditions that are dangerous. Uh, and I, I do think that it's yet another reason that everything else being equal, we should look for ways to try to move this conflict from the battlefield to the negotiating table. Well, Charles Kupchin, I thank you very much for joining us here today. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And this program is available for podcasting at backgroundbriefing.org, where you can sign up for our email updates as well as subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this program, you can help us reach more listeners by taking a moment to rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do share the program with friends and family and colleagues on Twitter and Facebook. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. Bye.